I had a team to run and I'd never run a, a team anyway. It was my first management position. I've got six people I'm supposed to look after. So, um, and I just didn't know what to do. I, so I did that time on it thing, which is ignored them. <laughs> Let them manage themselves, which again, that's not a very good way to do it. So finally, after about six months, um, we parted ways. And uh, I sort of had a bit of a sort of breakdown about that really, because like, my friends had helped me get me the job, kind of felt like I'd let them down. It's just like, you know, and uh, what I found out then was that they were like, why didn't you call us? We would have helped you if you didn't know what you're doing. You know, we, everyone's like that. No one knows what they're doing. No one knows what they're doing. This is so true. Whether it's working for someone, managing teams or running your own business, there will be many times, maybe every single day, that you discover you just don't know what to do. But as Steve's friends suggested, ask for help. Someone, somewhere, will know the answer. Okay, maybe you have to pay a bit of money for it, but it may be totally worth it. We didn't arrive here with all the answers. We've had to learn all our knowledge from others. In this episode, Steve speaks about several topics around running your own business. Enjoy. Staying Alive UK. Share your story. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Share Story podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, pretty good. It's uh, just uh, 20 past five here in Hong Kong. Um, boiling hot day. Weather is really off the charts at the moment, about 34 degrees outside. Wow. And uh, yeah, stinking hot, basically. Yeah, I... I, I have been to Hong Kong a few times and I do know how hot it can get, especially the humidity is just like, <laughs> can be can be really bad at times. But yeah, it's still a beautiful place though. So uh, yeah, I'd love to know how you ended up there. Um, really good to see you. I know we've got some common interests, so I'm really looking forward to a, to a really interesting podcast to hear your story uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it so um to get to get us going um we we go back to your origins we we'd love to know where were you born where were you educated where did you go to school uh if you moved around obviously i think you probably have but uh tell us where and how and how that all come about and then tell us about your first job how did you then get into work um and the progression of that and then ultimately how did you end up in your current role and uh, your current work and we can deep dive into that so I'm, I'm really interested in getting stuck in there as well so over to you steve right well this is <laughs> you asked some big questions um my story begins way before i was born or well, nine months or anyway um yes now, uh, my mother is from Belize in Central America, and she met my dad when he was there, stationed there with the British military. Now, um, on my mum's side, our family name is Blair. We are descended from Mayan Indians with Afro and Latin on the way, so, and Scottish. Wow. So how, how the family started, Blair went to Belize in the 1700s to seek his fortune, and he married a Mayan Indian, and that's how our family started. So I say on the way, we've got Afro and Latin. So uh, ultimate village dog on my dad's side. Family name is Bruce, it's a well-known Scottish name. Uh, we have our own coat of arms and our tartan. I'm very proud of my Scottish heritage. And um, we're descended from Roman Jewish slaves that the Romans left behind. Obviously the Romans wrote down things much better than they do in Belize. So <laughs> we have a lot more, uh, um, though probably the Belizean culture is much richer. So anyway, um, that's was... that's a, an amazing introduction to begin with. And <laughs> I, I'm just going to interject a tiny, tiny, tiny fact here. Did you know, because you're from Mayan descent, did you know that yesterday was the 25th of July is a day out of time, according to the Mayan calendar? I did not know that, no. Yeah. And the, the only reason I know is it was the day of my father's passing and oh. i didn't know until 
many, many years later where I attended, and I know this is not about me, it's about you, but I, I just think this is so interesting that we're recording this on the 26th of July, and yesterday the 25th of July, was the Mayan day out of time. So I'm so grateful that I'm actually speaking to a Mayan today. <laughs> well, a bit Mayan, about an eighth, I think. Well, it doesn't matter. Enough, it's, actually... it's enough. <laughs> there are no accidents in the universe, as they say. No. And indeed, it's my niece's birthday today, so I'm going to call her later and I'll share this interesting fact with her. I'm sure she would like to know that. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, look, it up. Carry... look it up. Um, oh, I will. I'll definitely Google. I mean, all of my family will be interested to uh, to learn about that. We're all, we're all very, uh, again, very proud of our Mayan heritage as well. Yeah. Okay, so especially since it's not a particularly common one that you come across every day. No, no, definitely. So it's quite, even finding another Belizean is quite hard outside of Belize. So. Mm. <laughs> um, I've met a couple in Hong Kong before, but not very often. No, no. Okay, you carry but, on. Yeah, so to continue, so then um, my dad was stationed in Belize, he met my mum, and um, they got married. I was uh, made in Mexico on their honeymoon, and uh, then born in Red Hill in Surrey in the UK, and then shortly after that, after a couple of years old, we moved to Malta, and, my, and again, my dad was posted to Malta, so we spent a few years living there, quite uh, very happy memories of my childhood actually being in Malta, really nice Mediterranean place. The Maltese are, are lovely, they're a bit crazy. Um, the old thing about how do you make a Maltese cross, it's not that hard. Um, and, but they, they really like the English because of the role we played in the war. And yes. Malta is actually awarded the George Cross, which is the highest medal that can be awarded to a civilian. Mm -hmm. um, because of their struggle against the Nazis during the Second World War. So they really, you know, we're, there's a quite a very strong relationship between Baltis and English. So unfortunately, the, uh, the socialist prime minister didn't see it that way and kicked out all of the British forces. So we were all left. Mm -hmm. And that was about 1972. Uh, we came back to England, stayed on the south coast, um, a place called near Dimchurch in Kent. Uh, stayed there for a while. And then we were posted to Northern Ireland uh, yeah. during the Troubles. So wow. I was there at a horrible time. It's the only, only time during my sort of time as a son of a soldier that we were actually in a battle zone. Yeah. And it was there. We were there on Bloody Sunday. That was quite uh, traumatic because my dad was in the Royal Signal. So he um, does a communication. So his job was to fix radios. Wow. But except you, you don't get a gun. So um, he, he needs to be protected by an infantryman Gosh. and was driving around in Belfast on Bloody Sunday, fixing radios and trying not to get killed, which is like Whoa. quite hard. And uh, so that was, yeah, it was quite, it wasn't a fun time. And at that time, as kids, we were like, I was about seven at that time. We, we used to, if the, if the Irish kids used to get into the camp, then bad things would happen. Uh, they uh, used to like throwing bricks at soldiers with guns. And yeah. They're not afraid of them, so if they get hold of another kid, they won't spare you much. So, um, and wow. so it was very, you know, just very stressful, like being in that kind mm -hmm. of situation. So, finally, we we left and we we came back to England, and at that time, there were some family problems. So, there, we had three sons. So, me and my brother were sent to live in uh, Shetland with my uncle, right? And we stayed there. It was, probably the happiest time in my childhood, actually, because it was like, you know, it's a very wild place, mm. but it's also a very safe place. So you, you can pretty much do what you want. And that was, yeah, it was, I have very, very happy memories of like, you know, going fishing and going canoeing and going boating and just doing all these outdoor things. And, yes. you know, my uncle my, was very different to my military dad. And so um, we were pretty much allowed to do what we wanted, whereas with my military dad, <laughs> that wasn't always the case. Yeah. So it was a very different period of time. So finally came back and we lived in Dorset at the home of the Royal Signal, a place called Blamford. Yeah. Uh, and we stayed there for a, few, a good few years. Uh, then we went to, uh, we were posted to Belgium. Right. Uh, Antwerp and in a Flemish part. And yes. we lived at a house. We, weren't, we didn't live in the military base with all the other soldiers, which is quite unusual. 
because uh, normally the military like to keep their people together. They don't like you fraternizing with civilians, basically. Mm. They see it as a security risk. So anyway, um, we lived in a house near Kiel, which is a famous for its lunatic asylum. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as you'll know, I think. Um, I don't I know it, but I'm not I surprised escaped. with the Belgians. <laughs> Say again. I, I escaped, though, and I'm on, still on the run. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, but it was, it was very strange because my dad used to work in the military base in Antwerp. And he would go there every day on his little moped, on his broom feet. Yes. And, um, and come home again. And there was nobody living next door to us. It was these two houses. Mm. Our only friends were the, the pig farmer's kids. And we were in a super local place, like in the middle of, it was in the middle of nowhere. It was quite strange, nice. actually, that we lived yeah. there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was quite an interesting time. But um, I was of secondary school age by that time. So I used to go to boarding school in Germany. Um, in a place called Rheindahlen, which is in the north of Germany near Mönchengladbach. Wow. And uh, I went to a Kent school, that's like a, a military school. Yeah. Um, it's, it, you don't march up and down or wear a uniform, but it's where all the sort of expats and military kids go. Yes. So we'd stay, So again, had a really good time there. Uh, really, actually really enjoyed boarding school, mm. I, I have to say. Um, it was great to Not get away from Not many people say basically. that, do they? No, I, it was quite the opposite for me. I mean, you know, my dad was very strict. And, you know, being a teenager, there's a lot of pushback happening. So it was a good time to not be together so much. Yes. And I actually did really well there. Um, I was, you know, doing very well at school. Great. And then we moved back to the UK, to West London, Hounslow, by Heathrow Airport. Yeah. And uh, our house used to be underneath the, the runway of the plane. So they'd come over our house at about a thousand feet in the air over our garden Literally, I don't know, it couldn't have been in a worse place for noise. Oh, wow. And they literally used to fly over our garden. Like, and, uh, quite, uh, in the end, we were able to tell um, what plane was coming. I mean, that's one thing when you're an army brat, you learn what the noise of different helicopters are. Yes. And again, we could tell different planes just hearing them come and start mm. to know the timetable when they're coming in or, or if there's a big transport plane coming in sometimes. It was like... And, uh, yeah, during that period, I was in the Air Cadets as well. Uh, basically, at 13, my dad sort of sat me down and said, pick one, Army, Air or Sea. Yes. And uh, so I took air, because at least we could go flying. Mm. And that kept me off the streets. Uh, that was kind of the early 80s. Yes. So there was a lot of uh, extreme right-wing activity going on there, like National Front, skinheads and such like. Oh, football. Yeah. yeah. So I'd go to school on Monday and... I said, what do you do at the weekend to my friends? And they were like, oh, I went to football, got arrested, had a fight. Yes. And all this kind of thing. And, and you know, fought some skinheads. Oh. And with the go, what do you do? And I go, well, funny you should ask. I went to Wales, camping. I shot guns. I abseiled down a cliff. I went on canoes. And, yeah, I was just doing much more healthy outdoor activities and, oh, and keeping amazing. out of trouble. And, and uh, you know, I don't regret military training at all, I have to say. I'm, I'm not a militarist. No. Um, my views have changed somewhat on that. But the thing is, when you're an army brat, it's in your DNA. And yes. you can't get rid of it. So of even course. now, it's just a... There's, um, like on Facebook, for example, there are there's some groups like British Forces Brats and uh, some other ones about Hong Kong kids. And we, if I meet another army brat, we instantly have a, a very deep bond. Wow. And it... It doesn't matter if you don't get along. It's just that we just understand each other really well. Yes. And uh, Hong, you know, Hong Kong is generally full of army brats and ex-brats. So we're all used to moving around and having to fit in. And there's, there's just some things you can't you can't explain it to people who are not I've, live that. I've life. never heard the term before. It's just the first time me, me hearing army brat. I mean. Well, that's what they call us, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got you know, British British forces brat. So you're either an army brat, navy brat, or an air force brat. I never like, heard uh, of that before. No. So uh, yeah, it's quite a quite a thing. I mean, we we really um, I don't know. I say it's really weird. It's just yes. woven into you. Like you know, even now, it's like you know, if I'm walking up the road, I always imagine my dad saying, "Chest out, shoulders back, tummy in, walk tall." Like that, you know that Johnny Cash song, uh, "Walk tall, walk yes. straight, and look the whole world in the eye." It's like that. Kind of <laughs> very staunch. 
like uh, and and it does actually change your physiology. I studied under Anthony Robbins. Yes. And one of the things he teaches is about standing up and, and you know, body posture, the effect on physiology. So oh. when I'm when I'm on my, when I'm on my way to a meeting, I always do that. Um, the science of it is it, you get more air in your lungs. Yes. So that means that more oxygen is flowing to your brain, and you yes. start feeling more positive, and you know, you're strolling down the street. But you have more of really a presence as well when you walk into a room. Absolutely. Um, you, people just notice you when you do that. You know, when you stand up straight, and you're not kind of walking like this, going, "Oh, hello," you know. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Oh, no, I mean, there's, there's some things that that come up quite a lot about, um, like being on time, for example. Um, in the military, they say five minutes early is on time. On time is late. Yes. So, and I'm not always on time. So I, I hate being late, though. Yes. I really, and, I, and I despise it in others. Like uh, people are late. It's um, I, I don't know what I've come to learn. You know, life is made of time. So you need to respect people's time. Yes. You can't waste their time. And like, and generally, um, I've done sort of landmark forum training. And one of the things they talk about is that you train your listening. So people's listening for you. So if you're the kind of person, like we've all got friends that you lie to them about what time you're really meeting. Yes. So if you're meeting Friday at seven, you'll tell them it's six. Yeah. Because you know they're going to be late and then there's half a chance they might be on time. Oh, wow. If, uh, if you tell them, you know, the wrong time. But what that means is those, you're always expecting that person to be late. Yeah. So and, and so generally how you behave is how other people will treat you. So it's quite um, yeah. quite interesting about the sort of being on time. Bit. It's quite, uh, yeah. Yeah. But then, um, so what happened then? We've got up to Hounslow. I, was, I finished my schooling there. And then we left, my dad left the army. We moved back to Surrey, where he's from. He's born in Red Hill as well. Right. And so we moved back to around Leatherhead area, which is like Junction 9, M25. Yes. And um, we stayed there. I continued, just did the sixth form. Started working, my first job. Was working on a. It was during the recessions of the early eighties, mm-hmm. so I was working in a um, on a government training scheme in John Menzies. Oh yes, working in the in the warehouse. My first boss was a um, an ex RAF storeman. Right. And uh, so he taught me a lot, and we obviously we got along quite well because of the forces oh. connection. And um, yeah, he just taught me just you know things like always be busy. You know, I don't sit around. If you if you, you know, if you sit around, people will find jobs for you to do. Yes. You probably won't like them. So there's, he said, there's always work to do. We had the most tidy storeroom, like military style storeroom. So we knew where everything was. We could lay our hands on it. No computer, mm-hmm. no books or anything. We just had a system that we use, and we knew how many stock we had, and uh, yeah, what's a critical order level stuff that they use computer programs for now. Yes. We just knew it because we were just by writing on the boxes, basically, and just we had a system where we knew where we could put a hand on anything. Wow. And uh, I did. I used to really enjoy that because uh, just knowing, having, just knowing what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we used to get really pissy with the shop staff when they they didn't um, put stuff back in the right place. They're <laughs> 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 ruining our system. <laughs> but we had the tidiest stock crew in the world, I reckon. Brilliant. So that was good. And then um, I worked. A brief career career in electronics for about three years. Right. And um, unfortunately, I'm not really designed to be an electronics wireman for many reasons. The first one being is that I'm colorblind. Right. So that doesn't go very well with the resistors. They're all different colors. Yeah. And um, also, I'm pretty sociable. So working in a workshop with just a few people every day didn't really fit my personality very well. No. So um, finally... I left that job. I went. Uh, then I moved in. Still working in electronics. I were working for a, a company that made uh, laser guided tunneling equipment. So they they, they made the, the basically all the big holes that have been dug, like the channel tunnel and tunneling stuff like that. Yes. They have this big track vehicle with a, a cutter on the front, a bigger boom arm and a cutter on the front. Yeah. It looks like something out of Thunderbirds. I know. And, yeah. Um, I've seen them. And we we basically made the uh, the guidance system for that. And they're designed to operate in really hostile environments, um, like underground, flooded tunnels and all this kind of thing. So everything has to be in metal boxes and waterproof and yeah. completely, uh, it is, yeah, you, it's quite a big deal. But that was very interesting. And that's when I learned the truth about the laser is that um, 
the, the laser that will hurt you, you can't see. Yeah. It's not visible to the human eye. The coloured lasers are not the right frequency to cut you in half. The worst, there's a scariest thing. If a, you know, the, the laser will do you actually damage, you would never know it is there. So wow. it's quite um, good to know. <laughs> yeah. And then um, finally, I'd had enough of electronics, wasn't really working out for me. So I left that job and I moved over to um, Heathrow Airport mm-hmm. where I worked as a buyer's assistant in the procurement department. British Airways at Hatton Cross. Right. And I worked there as a sort of permanent temp. They tried to hire me, but I, I just, I didn't see it as my life, basically. I still right. hadn't found what I was looking for. And um, after meeting a girl on holiday in Greece who worked in advertising. Right. Um, my life changed. You know, she had this, it was like about 1983. She, she had a company car, a Filofax, an expense account. And just, you know, her, her job mattered. And she did cool things every night, going to events and openings. And, and I was just like, I need a job like that. <laughs> so I was like, how do I get one of those? So she got me to read some books, most notably Ogilvy and Advertising. Right. Um, and The Fundamentals and Practice of Marketing, which to this day is still the best book written on the subject, in my opinion. Okay. And uh, after reading those, I managed to get myself a job working at McCann Erickson in London as a, as a TV buying assistant. So I was working on Coca-Cola and Esso and Black & Decker, these brands, basically responsible for placing all the TV advertising. So I, I worked for this, I had a psycho boss. <laughs> he used to smash up the phone and shout a lot. <laughs> um, it was, the first six months were living out, it really was. Like, oh, it was just so terrifying because I didn't know what I was doing. He was a genius. He could work out, um, they have a thing called a cost per thousand. It's a calculation that we use. Yeah. And it basically means the cost of reaching a thousand people. And he could do it in his head. Wow. To more decimal places and quicker than I could do it on the calculator. Oh my God. And I just was always trying to beat him. And he just would give me it to three decimal places. And he'd like, oh, that's just before I'd even press the button. So wow. he, was a, he was a really intelligent guy. <laughs> but anyway, um, I stayed there for a few years. Um, and then about when I was about 26, I, no, no, sorry, not 26, but just before 30, I went off on my first backpacking trip. Right. So I headed off, headed off to Asia, uh, normal path, flew into Bangkok, um, and then just traveled down through, uh, you know, just Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, ended up in Bali, spent some time there and then came back to Singapore. Mm-hmm. where I worked at Zook nightclub as a, as a dancer. I had the best job in the world. My job was to hire pretty, approach pretty girls and get them to work at the club. Right. So this isn't something that you can just easily do. Singapore is quite a conservative country. It is, yeah. And so trying to get someone's little princess to work as a dancer in a nightclub, it takes a bit of effort. So you, mm-hmm. know, you have to sort of befriend them, warm them up a bit. It takes about six weeks to get them ready for they're ready to do it. Yeah. And uh, and uh, then 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 they sort of come and go. But it was quite yeah quite a nice job. Mm. And, um, Different. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, jumping back a bit, I forgot there was um I went to Greece as well. I, I did a summer in Greece, uh, where I, I worked in Paros, which was quite amazing. Again, probably one of the best summers I've ever lived. Amazing. Yeah. Got there and. Unfortunately, I had a, a very near-fatal motorcycle accident, was it? Wow. Um, managed to survive, and it drove back across from Greece all the way back to England in a Volkswagen Combi right. via the Munich Beer Festival. <laughs> that, was, that was quite an experience. <laughs> well, we used to do all this crazy stuff when we were, I was young, me and my mate. We just used to go. Like, we went to Ibiza one time, and uh, we had £80 for both of us for the week. Mm. And... We and nowhere to stay, <laughs> but we managed to work out. I mean, as I, I, when I look back on it now, the um, the arrogance of youth. It didn't occur to us that anything could go wrong. Yes, and it didn't. We got all, and we used to do that all the time. Stuff like that. We got go to Tenerife or how, just how old have fun. Were, how old were you then? The sort of early twenties. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really have a proper job till I was twenty six. Yeah, I, I just used to you know spend my time just going away and just traveling and having fun as much as possible. Well, you know, you know, the, the adolescent brain 
doesn't get fully developed until you're around 25. So the frontal lobe, the, what they call the executive, doesn't start to kind of kick in and look at things more rationally until you're around 25. So that kind of totally fits in with the calendar of you that by 26 you started to get a proper job. And up until then, <laughs> you know, because your brain kind of got developed by 25 and it's, then you kind of start to think things more through more rationally and kind of make decisions based on risk versus just, you know, there is no risk up until that point. <laughs> well, thank God there isn't. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, really, I really had a good time. Yeah. Just traveling around and just, uh, you know, and generally you know, the lesson was that if you don't expect it to go wrong, it generally won't. But I mean, I guess you're quite naive at that age as well. We didn't, it didn't occur to us that, you know, anything could be go horribly wrong. Yes. So that was uh, quite, yeah, quite interesting. <laughs> but anyway, so um, first backpacking trip ended up in Singapore. Worked mm -hmm. there. Finally went home. Mm -hmm. um, had to be the best man at my brother's wedding, and nice. the job I couldn't turn down. And I thought, okay, that's me done now. I've had my, you know, overseas experience. I'm going to come back, settle down, mm -hmm. get sorted out. So back to my advertising career. Um, I worked at uh, CIA, not the CIA, but uh, it's a media agency. And then I worked at Initiative Media as well. Mm -hmm. And But I couldn't quite settle down. Right. Um, the, the thing is, um, once you've been over the hill, you're always like wanting to go back there. Yes. And I, I just couldn't settle down. I tried so hard. And I, it was, I just said, right, now I can't, I can't live in England. I need to leave and find somewhere, somewhere else to live. So gosh. I left again in about 95 on my second backpacking trip, and I'm still on it. <laughs> um, went back to Asia again, ended up in Australia, um, spent a year in Australia, um, and then I, was, I had to leave Australia because my, uh, my visa was up. Yes. And I had two options, either go to New Zealand or come to Hong Kong. And my best friend, Kim Hewson, was living in Hong Kong, and he, he said, uh, Come here, handover's coming. Witness some world history. You never know. Yeah, he might. Uh, he might be happy you were there at one time. And how right he was. <laughs> oh wow! Came for six months. And I stayed for twenty-four years. Whoa! And, uh, so, so my first job in Hong Kong was delivering sandwiches for Shamrock Sandwiches, which is like a sandwich delivery service. So, I basically said, right, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Food and shelter is the first one. Mm. So I had somewhere to stay. I stayed with my friend on the sofa and I could sell sandwiches and I could eat the ones that I didn't sell. Yes. So I figured, right, there you go. And I'll make some money as well. Yes. So that got me started. Did that for two days. Then I got a job working in a bar in Lang Kui Fong, Yelps Inn, as it was in those times. And um, worked there for two weeks. And what I found was uh, two weeks in, some, while I'd been away traveling, a bunch of my friends had, yeah. uh, that I used to work with in London had been posted to Hong Kong. Right. And they came in the bar and they were like, I was behind the bar. And they were like, what? Steve <laughs> Bruce working behind the bar? No way. This is not allowed. So they said, we need to find you a job. So they helped me to find a job within four weeks of being in Hong Kong. Uh, I went from sandwich delivery boy to running regional media for Philip Morris and Reebok at Leah Burnett. Wow. So, um, which is like quite a, a jump. But anyway, I mean, I'd been working in advertising. Unfortunately, that job didn't work out too well. I, I sank like a stone, basically. I didn't have the experience of working in Asia that I needed. Yes. Um, if I had the same job in England, um, I would have had about three levels of management above me, highly yes. invested in my success. Yeah. Whereas what I actually had was a boss... I think I only met him about three times ever. Right. And um, and he, he always used to travel. So we just used to communicate by email. He didn't really used to call me or anything. He would just send emails. And um, I had a team to run. And I'd never run a, a team anyway. No. It was my first management position. I had six people I'm supposed to look after. So, um, and I just didn't know what to do. I, so I did that time on it thing, which is ignored them. Yes. <laughs> The manners themselves, which again, that's not a very good way to do it. 
So finally, after about six months, um, we parted ways. Yeah. And uh, I sort of had a bit of a sort of breakdown about that, really, because like, my friends had helped me get me the job. Kind of I know. I'd let them down. And just like, you know, and uh, what I found out then was that they were like, why didn't you call us? We would have helped you if you didn't know what you're doing. You know, we, everyone's like that. Yes. No one knows what they're doing. And, uh -huh. we, and, and I, because when I was in London, we were, I, I'm pretty friendly. Mm. So I'd get quite friendly with our suppliers, with the TV stations. Yeah. And, and even people from other agencies. And there was one time in particular that I was called in the office and they said to me, look, um, we think you're a bit too friendly with the suppliers. Um, you know, we worry that you could be compromised or that it could cause trouble for you. Yeah. If any confidential information leaks out, you know, we, we're going to come to you. And it was still, I was quite friendly with someone from another agency. And I was told very clearly, that's not going to work out for you. No. And uh, so I had that view that you don't talk about, uh, you know, anything to do with work with somebody else from another agency or whatever. Or yeah. In Asia, no help is coming. Uh -huh. If you don't know, you find out. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's a lot, you know, the, the, the line between business and friendship is a lot more blurry. Right. And you end up becoming friends with your clients and with your suppliers and with other people from because the market's much smaller. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know if it's still like that now, but certainly when I came, it was like, yeah, people, you could, you know, things were talked about. I mean, I then subsequently moved into sales. Yeah. I mean, outdoor media, working for a bus shelter company called Texan Media, now owned by JC Deco. Right. And I got there just at the right time when, um, like JC Deco had just started the, the concept of street furniture in Paris. Right. So there were suddenly, you know, bus shelters were becoming sexy. Who knew? And um, they were doing lots of creative things and sticking things on the top of them and, you know, like making them like well lit and safety places and, yes. you know, like UV protection and very just well designed basically mm. and actually much more than just a bus shelter. Yeah. And um, what I found then, again, like in Hong Kong, I'd be like trying to do, I was brought in to set up a, a video wall business in, right. in Beijing and Shanghai, and uh, which is a disaster actually, but it was quite, it was, quite, it was a very interesting experience. Mm. I got to go to, um, to Beijing pretty much every week for about a year and a half. Wow. And I would leave, fly up there on a Sunday. Um, I used to live in Lama Island, so it's like to get, I could to be there on hit the ground running on Monday. I had to leave on Sunday. Yes. So you'd be up there and you've got a diary full of meetings and it's quite, it's really interesting actually there because it's still a bit wild west. Mm. And so like when you go to meet with agency heads and all this to try and sell them and they would be like, oh yeah, let's meet at five o'clock and then we're going to have a drink afterwards. And I was like, okay. And they're all kind of a bit like, oh great news from the outside world. Come. So we'd like, you know, go for a drink and have dinner and then you know, we get to about 10 o'clock at night and everyone's a bit drunk and I'd be like, so, you know, what's it really like working up here? And they're like, mm, well, it's like a, interesting. And you're going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, really good experience. <laughs> like, but I always remember that they all, they all had like very deep set, sad eyes. Yeah. And they, they always all have big bags under their eyes and their eyes. Were very, they just look sad. Mm. And one of the best things I never did was move to China because at that time it wasn't the right time for me to do it. No. And like um, the just getting stuff done at that time was just a disaster. Yeah. Like you know you, you had to give very clear instructions, and if you if you missed out even one small part of the instruction, then the orders would not be followed properly and. Yeah. It was like, yeah, you've, I really got good at communication and really thinking through what could be the possible road bumps yeah. or derailers yeah. to get things. And it, it's, it's very tiring because you have to just think so much. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. And then anyway, so that, that company uh, failed in the end, um, but I had this amazing experience of going mm. to China every week, pretty much staying there all week. And uh, I mean and then coming back to Hong Kong at the weekend. And it was just amazing. I mean, that really, I'm so glad that I, I'm grateful that I had that opportunity because China was still, it was kind of Deng Xiaoping's era. 
when they used to talk about, you know, to get rich is glorious and, you know, really golden time. Yes. And there was a lot happening and things were changing very quickly and it was, you know, there was lots of money being made and lots going on. So that was, that was pretty good. But anyway, that company, so we got out of it in the end and I then took on a role selling bus shelters. And again, it was just boom time. Yes. So we just, I worked with my boss. We just had a great time selling bus shelter advertising and like, you know, believe you're making a ton of money out of it as well. It was just really, uh, very fun. Mm. And we had lots of different schemes going on. Uh, and just, yeah, it was just a very good time. We, we used to sell our excess inventory. Um, and we used to work with restaurant groups and, and, uh, promoters. Yeah. So we basically sell the excess inventory to them. We'd always have a few bus shelters left over that were empty. Yeah. So we'd fill them up with their, with their, um, with their posters. Yeah. But what that meant is that we got VIP tickets to every show in town. <laughs> we had, we could take a client to pretty much any restaurant in Hong Kong. And we had this money that needed to be spent every month. And, um, so it basically took care of all our expenses. So, yes. um, that was pretty fun. Like just going, you know, it was great to be able to sort of take clients out and it was still in the, you know, the kind of a uh, boozy lunch era. Mm. Remember those? Yes, I do. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't happen anymore. I don't think like, no, uh, well, I, I don't in, know, I but in, hope not. <laughs> well, in, in London, like when I was in working in London, like we were, it was, it, I got the kind of last of the advertising eighties. Yes. And, uh, I remember when I first worked at McCann's was, there was one time we would always go, we worked really hard. We were kind of like underpaid stockbrokers in the yes. terms of the pressure of the work. Yeah. And Friday lunchtime comes and the reels are all closed up for the weekend. So you can't put any book in the advertising. Nothing can be changed. No. So we go to the pub and just get super drunk. Yeah. So we come back to the office about sort of three o'clock or whatever. Yeah. You know, having had about three or four beers. And one time, one of the buyers came back. Well, the, the fun things would happen. Like we'd have office cricket. <laughs> for example, like with a, a paper ball or office football, and it was just pretty, you know, mad in the afternoon. Like not much work, kind of like a bit like a schoolboy's messing around. And yes. one time, one of the buyers came back and he got one of the secretaries and he bent her over the photocopier, simulating things he oughtn't. And a memo went round. This is how different things were then. A memo went round saying, "If you buyers go out at lunchtime and you are drunk." Don't come back. <laughs> that's, that, that was that's like what, ever. Was, uh, no, yeah, just no. They said just don't come back. Uh, stay out. Don't come back and do anything. And they didn't say anything about the poor girl. Oh, it wasn't a consideration. And uh, you know, she was obviously you know, not very happy about that. No. And uh, like, um, I mean, it's obviously so different now. It was a different era, but like, uh, yeah, it was quite quite funny. And again, Hong Kong. During the sort of early years here, we still, you know, go out for long lunches and all this kind of thing. We, you know, we did a lot of business that way. If you'd sign a big deal, yes. then we'd just stay out. Yes. You know, bring the client for lunch to sign the contract. And, yes. And then, you know, stay out kind of thing. And it was a, you know, it was a, it was a fun time. Mm. And I think, I think the world has changed now. People, I think it would be considered a bit old fashioned if you were, if you were the kind of person who wanted to stay out for a boozy lunch. Yes. It would be like, oh, really? If that's who you are, is it? Which is a shame, I think, in some ways. I mean, it's quite, you know, quite, it was quite fun to do. And, and, and you do a lot of business. Like, you get to know the client really well and, mm. you know, you can become friends with them or whatever. And, like, you know, it's good for business. Mm. But, I mean, I think ever since the Bribery Act in the UK. Yes. That ruined all our fun, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, um, I worked in the bus shelters for a while and then... I got hired by what's now Campaign Asia magazine. At that time, it was called Media Magazine. Right. Owned by an Australian guy called Ken McKenzie. And getting hired there as a regional head of sales coincided neatly with the dot-com boom. Mm. So I was in the right place at the right time, basically. Yes. And the guy before me hadn't really done any work. He, I, I had his computer and... It was all, he just used to spend the day straight trading stocks and shares. He didn't really right. do much work. So right. um, I came in quite keen and gave them the highest revenue they'd had in their whole 27 year history. 
Wow. And it was because that, I mean, I'd love to say that that was because of my superior sales skills, but it was as much that it was a dot-com boom. Yes. There was always these companies coming in from the US with loads of money to spend. Mm. And my job was basically go out to as many internet startup dues as I could fit into one night, mm. identify and connect with the decision maker for advertising, and then follow up the next day. Right. So and it was literally like that every night. Oh. I just, um, I don't, that's why I had to, so that, that was my job essentially. So yeah. just get the name cards and, you know, I've always had a hangover. So I'm in a gained a load of weight. It was quite full on. But anyway, that, that magazine got bought by Haymarket Publishing. And often what happens when a big company buys a smaller one, yeah. they want their guys in the senior positions. Of so course. I got hoiked out. Um, and that happened a week before 911. Whoa. Um, and so I was actually in the US on 911, but luckily far away in LA. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I came back to Hong Kong eventually. We were so mad being there at that time because yeah. Americans just had no idea what to do. They'd never been had an attack on this home soil before. Whereas no. with me, you know, I'd grown up living in Belfast and you know, like being in actual places where it's quite dangerous. And during yes. the 70s and 80s in the UK, if you're in the military, it was a problem. Yeah. Like, you know, you could, there could be a bombing and you, you had to be alert. So yes. I was quite used to that. It didn't really stress me out. Of course. And um, whereas the Americans were just like, couldn't cope. Of course they couldn't. So it, that was really, a, a, yeah, it was very interesting being there just yeah. to see how different people react. Yeah. And finally, I just said, right, I need to get back to Hong Kong, get on with things. Mm. And then I came back and there was, there was no problem to get work. Um, everybody wanted to hire me as a consultant, but nobody wanted to hire me full time. Right. Um, also, we had like the Asian financial crisis and we had, uh, then we had bird flu SARS. Yes. All of that stuff going on. So they, you know, it was quickly pointed out to me that, yes, we want to use your services, but we, um, we can't write a check to Steve Bruce. That's they said, right. You need to set a company up. Yeah. So the originally named SB Consulting was born. Yes. And uh, that's been 20 years so far. Wow. And uh, it, it started off as a, a marketing consultancy. So using my advertising and sales experience just yes. to help companies. Yes. Um, and that was a lot of, uh, it, it started off with bigger companies and evolved into working more with SMEs, which I actually prefer. Yeah. Taking them from acting like a small company to acting like a bigger company. Yes. So, because I got big corporate experience, I know what that looks like. And so, typically, the clients I was working with are they either just started up, went from zero to twenty staff in a year. Yeah, can't believe that they've grown so quickly. You know, when they started, their mate designed the logo, another mate did the website, and they, they, no one's ever written a marketing plan. No, um, and barely got a business plan. But it's just gone boom. And, but now they realize that it's all creaking and they need to get it done properly. So they yeah. bring me, I'd get brought in yeah. to, uh, to help them to you know, create a marketing plan and strategy and actually what are we going to do here? Sure. How are we going to do it? And have them you know, get it all written down in one place. Perfect. And I, again, I really enjoyed that work. It's uh, yeah. very satisfying helping to get the company organized. But um, I mean, I, I've been using LinkedIn since 2003. Mm. Um, there was another one before. What was it called? Uh, Academy. No, no, no. Um, what was it called? Oh, I can't remember the name now. But anyway, I mean, I, I've always been a big fan of networking. Yes. Um, I 100% I, I believe that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. And it's good to be the kind of person who's well-connected, knows lots of people and can get things done. Mm. So I, as soon as LinkedIn came out, I was super happy to get on it. And I've been using it since then. Yes. And then I, it got to about 2011 and I was getting good results of it. Mm. Uh, and basically it was too good not to share. So I decided to um, start teaching it. Yeah. So I started off doing sort of lunchtime seminars. I was in a couple of uh, networking groups. And at the beginning, it was pretty depressing, actually. Mm. I, I used to sell a service for about 500 Hong Kong dollars or 50 English pounds or thereabouts, uh, where I do a review of your profile and I give you a report telling you what you needed to do. Yeah. And because I wasn't talking to the right people, mm -hmm. 
I was talking to local Hong Kong SMEs, um, they wouldn't buy, even at that low price. Right. And so I was getting like really depressed, going, wow, what have I done? Mm. <laughs> I'm in the wrong market. Yeah. And I was really about to give up. Um, and then I started working with a coach who basically made me significantly raise my prices. Right. And he said, like, you've got to stop. You're charging too cheap. He said, people don't respect you when you charge too cheap. That was, yeah. a, again, a really key lesson. Yes. And I started uh, talking to the right people. Um, those being, well, my target audience now is over 45. Um, typically married, two teenage kids that hate them. <sighs> zero relationship with their partner. And someone 15 years younger than them trying to get their job every day and saying, get this old guy out. So they come to me, they're feeling the pinch a bit. They tend to be senior executives in MNCs, business owners and yeah. corporate teams. And um, once I identified that proper target market, things started getting better. Great. Um, because you know, there's, there's a guy called uh, Aaron Ross. Um, he, he wrote a very good book called Predictable Revenue. Right. And he, what he talks about is your good fit client. And you, need, you must know who's your good fit client. Yeah. And you must have a brand persona of them. So in my case, I say I joke about, you know, zero relationship with their partner, two teenage kids that hate them. But literally the amount of conversations that come up, when I say that, people always laugh and they go, yep, that's me. Or they know someone who's like that. And uh, it helps to really understand who they are. And yeah. These kind of guys, particularly senior execs, they're, you know, it's tough at the top. They say it's lonely. You know, it doesn't, they, don't, they can't even talk to their mates about the stuff they talk to me about. Mm. And the, what I do now with them is as much career coaching or executive coaching as it is LinkedIn. Right. And uh, so, so in fact, my plan is to become an executive coach. Yes. So um, I'm, I know, again, I've, I really enjoy it. It seems to be that I'm rather good at seeing what people need to do with their life. I mean, my, my life's a train wreck, but I can tell you what to do with yours. <laughs> Apparently it's a common thing with coaches. But um, yeah, it's uh, the best one I've ever done. I worked with a lady, she was about 65. Yeah. And she'd done turnaround marketing for, um, I think it was, uh, do you remember Real Coke? The train wreck that was Real Coke when they tried to bring out a new Maybe. Coke. Yeah. Years ago. And like, yeah. And, and also Wrangler jeans. And these are all sort of in the 80s. Right. And these but they were massive turnaround campaigns. And she came to me and she said, oh, nobody's going to hire me. I'm 65. I'm too old. And I was like, are you nuts? The last thing you want to do is get hired. I said, you need to set yourself up as a marketing consultant. And with this pedigree that you've got, people will just give you their checkbook and say how much. Yeah. Please help us. And she, it hadn't occurred to her to do that. And she went skipping out the door. Today, she's a successful marketing consultant. Wow. And by helping her to see possibility, it was like, yeah, that's when I realized, oh, actually, I might be all right at this. <laughs> and um, so, and again, the, the thing about it is that the more I do, the better I get. So the more experience I get and find, you know, finding the right words to, to, to tell people's story yeah. in a powerful way. Yeah. So, so that works out pretty well. So, um, yeah, I mean, these days, that's what I do. I say my business model is about um, targeting you know, networking, high-quality networking groups, like professional networking groups. Yes. Um, and normal networking groups. Like I do quite a lot of Toastmasters, for example. Yes. Um, and generally, I prefer to work with high-quality networking groups because they, they've got the right target of client in there that I can get some one-on-ones from. Yes. And uh, I do, I've been doing quite a lot of students in Hong Kong with MBA students. I'm, I'm, I'm getting in more into the MBA space as well because okay. especially growing up MBAs because they're, um, they, they, they kind of want to promote themselves after they've done their MBA. So yes. it's, a, it's a great platform to do that. Yes. And um, yeah, so it's quite, so it's quite a, I mean, I, I'm lucky because I, I, I absolutely love my work. Yeah, it's uh, I really really enjoy it, and Fantastic. it's great to sort of help people. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to talk about to ask you a question because you you were a LinkedIn trainer before, but you seem to have got had enough of it, and I, I wonder what what happened. Yeah, so and and thank you for 
um, a wonderful story. And I, I think your journey has been incredible. And I think, you know, all the moving around that you've done around the world and traveling the world and has really set you up to do a fantastic job in what you're doing today. And, you know, th there's no accidents, as you said earlier, and um, incredible, incredible. Um, yeah, so I, I um, saw the potential of LinkedIn um, similar like you around the same time I joined 2004. And it wasn't until much later, until the advent of kind of social media, Twitter, Facebook started coming about. And I was looking at the time, I was in between jobs. But the reason I'm saying I was in between jobs is I was doing something totally different. I wanted to go in, I trained as a kinesiologist and I wanted to help people with their health and well-being. And it didn't happen. And then we got the financial crash and I needed to go and do something else. So I went into e-learning for a bit. And then whilst I was in that, I saw the emergence of social media. And I then decided to become a social media trainer. Now, just wind a bit forward quickly, because this is not about me, it's about you. But essentially, people were poo-pooing social media trainers at the time. They went, oh, you're not another social media. So then I realized that it was becoming a dirty word. And because everybody fancied themselves as a social media trainer, you know, if they knew how to fill out a profile. Or... So I, I decided to specialize on LinkedIn and go into the business side of the market, which which worked really well. I, I made the similar mistake of charging too cheap and I was even doing stuff for free in order to build my skill level to begin with and understanding. But I... I had a fantastic journey. I was really enjoying it. But there came a stage where LinkedIn was pretty well established now. And people knew about it and they wanted to learn. And by this time, I was charging better fees for it. But when I trained people, either in group situation, which was tough because everybody was at different levels of understanding. But if I did one-on-ones, which was better, the people would do nothing. So you, you, you know, they really want to pay to come on the course or they've been told by their boss to go on a course and then nothing would happen. You know, their profile didn't move forward. Um, so I realized that either more than likely I was the one who was either a bad trainer or not following up enough or not making my program the right program. But I was kind of blaming the the students and kind of going, oh, no one's doing anything. What's the point? And it was just demotivating me. And the second point was, I'd always had this concern over the five years that I did it, that LinkedIn is not my product. LinkedIn could fold overnight and I'd lose my work. I mean, I was doing something alongside it as well, not just LinkedIn. And then, of course, they got bought by Microsoft and I went, oh, you know, this is the writings on the wall here. You know, they're going to do their own training All the people that are out there doing training. They're not going to get a look in. And so I kind of went, mm, it's not suiting me personally in the direction that I was going uh, for me to continue with it. And that, that's it. Honestly, that's the how it all kind of panned out. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't believe in LinkedIn. I think it's powerful, super powerful tool. And in fact, something happened on Friday, which proved the power of it. And <coughs> for quick story, since March this year, I've been trying to solve a Google Pay account issue. I won't go through the whole story, but basically the support team at Google have been sending me all over the place to solve this problem. All different teams having to multiple support tickets. There's like 
five cases been running concurrently since beginning of April. I found the managing director of Google Pay on LinkedIn and she had a profile open so I was able to send her a free in-mail and to my amazement she responded instantly accepted my connection request and then I spoke to her on the phone on Friday like within hours of me sending her a message via LinkedIn and she's now solving it the problem that I've had like for four months so why I didn't find her before I don't know but I did look on LinkedIn for different people but um, yeah so I do believe in it I do massively believe in LinkedIn but like, um, well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, first of all, it's interesting that you talk about being a kinesiologist. Uh, I, I've quite a lot of experience of, I work with a kinesiologist. Okay. Um, a few years ago, I, I was about more than 10 kilos heavier than I am today. Right. And I worked, he basically got me on a keto diet. Right. I ended up losing about 16 kilos. I've regained some of it now, but like, uh, I kind of know what to do now and, you yeah. know, explaining to people about kinesiology you know it's not for everyone right but no. I, I i can show somebody in a minute you know the glass and the packet of cigarettes trick where you put a can of coke in their hand and ask them to hold their hand hand yes. up and they can't do it yes and then you put a glass of water in their hand and they can do it yes and it just shows that you know your your subconscious mind knows you better than you know yourself yes. so it's um it's quite yeah i mean i have i've got very positive experience oh brilliant kinesiology, so <laughs> brilliant i'm a big fan and then, um, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's interesting that for me, the, the turnaround bit, when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, mm. I thought that I never really worried about yeah, that. I've, I've always worried that they might, um, that they might just ban us all. Yes. Because that's what I worry about. I don't worry about them going bust. They're not going to go bust with Microsoft backing them. No. But I, and I'd be delighted if there was a certified trainer yes. qualification I could get. Um, they've now introduced one recently, which is like a certified ads. There are two courses yes. you can do for free yes. that will give you a certification. But I mean, I might do them just so that I can call myself certified. But actually, in the user agreement for LinkedIn, it actually explicitly says you cannot call yourself a certified LinkedIn trainer. No. Whereas, you know, um, but if I'm a certified ads trainer, I mean, it might help with credibility. I mean, I, I don't use LinkedIn ads, so... The first, um, quite the, interesting to, I think the first ads certified ads trainer has been on this podcast as well years ago, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> okay. I've, I forget his name off the top of my head. I'm trying to think, but I'll, I'll send him to you. He's yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. Great guy. Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, I, I did wonder about what they would do if, if it can be, um, yeah, if there will be some certification. I mean, yes. It's funny because very much of LinkedIn, it's kind of there, for, but for the grace of God, go I. Like, you know, my LinkedIn are very focused on their their good fit target client, which is like big companies. So they want, if, you're, if you've got, say, USD 10,000 a month to spend on CPC ads on LinkedIn, then yes. they'll send a very pretty girl to come and talk to you and send and service you very well. And the recruitment if side, you know, the... That that's the biggest part of it. Well, they, from what I know, it's about yeah, it's advertising and recruitment. I mean, most recruiters hate LinkedIn because they they have to pay so much mm. for the for the service. So, yeah. but it's obviously vital to their job. Yes. And uh, so, there's what it means is that for the, what's a small company for LinkedIn is actually a big client for me. Yes. Yes. So I. Yeah, and I, I don't need to have loads and loads of clients to, no. to do okay. No. So it's, um, I, I quite, I'm quite okay with being the warm-up act for LinkedIn paid services. Yes. And um, I deliberately avoid teaching people how to use the paid services um, for two reasons. Firstly, I don't really want to step on LinkedIn's toes. No. And secondly, um, most of the, the clients that come to me don't know anything about LinkedIn. No. So confusing them with premium services versus free. Um, my strategy is I say, I don't hate the paid services. I don't use them myself. Mm. I, I'm, I'm doing a, another trial of premium at the moment right. just to see if it will offer me value. But the, the main thing is that 
when you pay for LinkedIn, all you get is that you can see the name of everyone who looks at your profile. So if that's important for you to know, then it's, you know, that's, that's okay. But it's not that important for me to know. Someone looks at my profile, so what? Yeah. You know, if I then approach them and go, hi, see you looked at my profile. Yeah. <laughs> it can be a bit stalky. Yeah. <laughs> and even, you know, people just can feel a bit funny about it. So yeah. generally they'll contact me. I might look at that if they, that, you know, and see if they want to connect or whatever, or I'll, I'll, I'll see. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't hate the paid services, but I just don't really use them myself. Mm. And so, and again, teaching people, I say become an expert at the free services first and then decide if the paid services make sense yes. for you. And, um, and also what LinkedIn don't widely publicize is that you can pay by the month. So you don't need to buy it for a year. You can, if you've got a three-month project coming up, you could get Sales Navigator or you know, one of the business ones and just use it by the month. Yes. Obviously, it costs a bit more, but like uh, you know, you don't. You can be strategic with it. And if you're a bigger company, if you're buying, like, say, Sales Navigator for all your sales team, most sales teams don't use it probably anyway. No. They waste their money. No. So, and if you're not a big enough client for LinkedIn, they they'll barely send somebody to service your account. That's so right. It's, um, you need to be, you know, and they're very clear about what's their good fit target client. Yeah. And good for them. Um, I'm, I'm long may it continue. I'm, I'm very happy to, you know, I say what, what's a small client for them would be a giant client for me. It makes a lot of sense, and, Steve. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because, well, I, it keeps you under the radar, but it, it basically there's a gap in the market for that, isn't there? Because uh, they're well, yeah, not there being are plenty served. of LinkedIn trainers. Pardon? So uh, there's plenty of LinkedIn trainers. I mean, I, I'm on a couple of um, of LinkedIn sort of trainer groups. Yes. And I, um, you know, so I, we we kind of help each other and cooperate. Yes. Um, you know, generally people are not in my market, so not in Asia. No. And um, I'm not so friendly to the ones in Asia. So. No. <laughs> Sorry, Asia guys. <laughs> I know. I, I know quite a few of the characters as well over the years, and I worked with a group in America for a while. And um, I, my, my favorite uh, one is, uh, you probably know him, Andy. Um, Andy Foote. Andy Foote, yeah. Yeah, he's got, he's got weirdly, they have a, the LinkedIn user group on Facebook. It's on Facebook. I know. Not I know. I didn't a, join. Oh, the irony, right? Yeah, I know. It's that's, that's just so weird. But um, I mean, I'm on that every day, basically. Yeah. And um, also, Bryn Tillman. You might know her. I worked with Bryn for about twelve months. Yeah, we tried to set up a social selling company together. I was the only UK person in that. It just fizzled out. It didn't happen. But. Yeah. Well, they they were doing like a um. I'm I'm in the group with I saw sort of chat on LinkedIn with them. Yes, great. And uh, yeah, I mean it's quite interesting. I mean it's I like it's good to connect with other yes other LinkedIn trainers. Yeah. And um, what's the guy? The LinkedIn guy in England. He's quite well known. He's he's produces a newsletter as well. He really like his stuff. Um, it's yeah, it's quite it's good. Just um, I've I've connected with and had calls with some of those people as well. Yes. And it's good to sort of just talk to somebody else who does this, yeah, yeah, um, and realise that you have the same problems as they do. Of course, and yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, it's uh, that's yeah, it's quite quite interesting. I mean, it's good to connect with them, and like you know, you're like, oh yeah, we're all up against. Ah, oh, you too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel a bit better. So I mean, it's always yeah. So hopefully, you know, people that are listening to this podcast. Um, will be a combination of small businesses because that's where I target my guests anyway. Um, small businesses that are running their business or people like, you know, graduates, people that have got MBAs that are looking to start their own business um, or even people that are fed up in jobs and go and go, I'm leaving my job, I want to start my own business and get inspired by others. And inevitably, they need some help with their LinkedIn. I mean, I come across people every day. I used to kind of say, you need to sort your LinkedIn out, but I don't anymore. I've kind of got off that bus so I can leave them alone. But Send the, them to me, I'll help them. <laughs> yeah, the LinkedIn profiles are just not great. So here's your opportunity to promote where should people 
go to get in touch with you to, so that you can help them with their LinkedIn or any of their marketing that you're working on? Uh, where would you like them to look apart from LinkedIn of course that's an obvious one but where else well I mean the first thing is to just establish that everybody needs LinkedIn yeah on some level and uh, you know, if anyone a hiring manager or a client is going to Google you before they before they connect with you then yes. you are whoever Google says you are your LinkedIn profile shows that was the number one hit that's right so they're going to look at that before they even look at your website yeah so you've got a, an, an amazing opportunity to take charge of your personal brand. Yes. If you don't, then Google will do it for you. Yes. And that might not work out for you. So, yeah, basically, if, they, if you know, business owners, corporate teams, senior execs want my help, then they can find me. Um, my LinkedIn profile is um, linkedin.com forward slash Hong Kong marketing consultant. Right. Or they can just type in Steve Bruce LinkedIn or that, and they'll find me there. Yes. Um, they can reach me by email. At Steve Bruce at sbconsulting.com.hk. So it's S for Steve, B for Bruce. Um, and they can call me if they want as well, plus 852 9170 5575. Give me on WhatsApp or whatever. We can, uh, I mean, generally, I want to have a call with somebody to do a discovery call yes. with them anyway, just to make sure we're a good fit yeah. and uh, understand what they're looking for. So, um, and yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the easy ways to find me. Brilliant. Brilliant. And and that, that's great. And I'll include those in the show notes. And I'll make sure that if I come across people that need some LinkedIn support, I'll send them your way. Excellent. Thank you very much. For all, all leads gratefully received. Okay. I'll, I'll buy you a beer when I come back to England next time. Well, I've, <laughs> or I've, several beers, yeah, maybe. Uh, do you come to England a lot? Well, not, not these the moment, days, but, like, but uh, yeah, not these ho ho days. I'm overdue, so I will be back soon, <laughs> soon enough. You still got family here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like my two brothers live live in the UK, so brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm well overdue for a family visit. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, if you do come across, I really do mean it. Let me know, um, and if I've got nothing on, I'd love to meet up and we'll, you know, have a bite to eat together. It'd be great to meet you face to face, Steve. Yeah, likewise. Well, we have plenty of common friends, so like, I think we'll get on. Be all right. Yeah, we'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed listening to your story. Oh, thank you for having me on as a guest. It's been uh, great to share some stuff I haven't thought about in years. It's quite funny. It's <laughs> really amazing. Okay, take care. Bye for now. All right, thanks a lot. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe and share at will. I'm always looking for more listeners and guests, so do get in touch, please. You can find me pretty easily by searching for Staying Alive UK. Thank you. Staying Alive UK. Share your story.